Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culturally Relevant, a podcast about film, television, art, and culture. I'm David Chen, and today is going to be another diary episode. It's going to be an episode with me sharing my thoughts on what I'm thinking about, what's going on in my life, as well as what is happening in this country. If you want to hear uh, more episodes of this podcast, you can always go to culturallyrelevantshow.com. This podcast can be found wherever your podcast can be downloaded. And uh, you can always email me. Let me know what you're up to, what you're thinking about at culturallyrelevantshow at gmail.com or tweet at me at crevshow, that's C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. I do also want to mention that I recently launched a Patreon to support this podcast. If you're a fan of what I'm doing, I hope you'll consider supporting me at patreon.com slash Dave Chen. Today is Friday, September 4th, and according to the New York Times, yesterday there were at least 1,078 new coronavirus deaths and over 45,600 new cases reported in the U.S. Um, As of Friday morning, more than 6,167,400 people in the U.S. have been infected with the coronavirus, and at least 186,700 people have died. So we're rapidly heading towards uh, 200,000 dead in the U.S. from coronavirus, which is uh, an unimaginable toll. Someone on Twitter recently tweeted that, like, after 9-11, you know, several thousand people died in 9-11 through a combination of planes crashing and the World Trade Center towers coming down. And we have been sort of taught... um, encouraged by the U.S. media, by our government to grieve for that uh, for the last, you know, couple decades. Um, And the amount of grieving that's going on right now for the almost 200,000 dead is feels largely absent in comparison. You know, like things in the media seem to be going on as normal. And like, obviously uh, there's not that much grieving coming from our government uh, right now. I think a lot of effort is focused on the reelection campaign, Um, but always want to pause and just reflect on the fact that um, we've lost hundreds of thousands of people already. And we at current trajectory are going to lose hundreds of thousands more. And we're living in unprecedented times at the same time as all that's happening. There is this, incredibly strong desire I sense from uh, a lot of Americans, a lot of people around me, a lot of people from around the country to return back to normal, right? For things to go back to the way they were, it has been very challenging for many people to endure what has happened over the course of the last six months Um, from a financial level, from a psychological level, uh, from a personal and spiritual level, uh, from an emotional level. And so I understand that this desire is there because you can only kind of be in the situation that we've been in for so long with not much changing before you start kind of like wanting to change things up before you start wanting to take more risks. And uh, in Seattle, I'm seeing it a lot, like, you know, like mask wearing feels like it's down just anecdotally from uh, a few weeks ago, a couple months ago. Um, and things are starting to open up. People are eating in restaurants again. Uh, there's a movie theater that's not in Seattle, but like uh, down in Olympia, uh, which is about a couple hours drive south of here, that those theaters are, are like open now. Movie theaters are open. Uh, local museums are starting to open up with uh, COVID-19 special measures in place. And uh, so people are starting to, I think, uh, be less vigilant about things. Now, 
everyone has to choose a level of carefulness that they feel is appropriate for themselves, right? And one thing that I uh, have been reflecting on recently is, you know, when people talk, when my friends talk to me uh, about how careful I am, you know, because they've heard about how careful I am from live broadcasts I've done, from culturally relevant episodes. Uh, many of them say, uh, oh, Dave Chen, I think you're very careful. Um, I trust your level of carefulness. I would put myself at like around a seven to eight out of 10 in terms of carefulness, you know? Just when I think of like the most careful is you basically never leave your house. You know, you eat dried food all the time. Uh, you're, you're a complete 100% shut in. Uh, that's like a 10 out of 10. I'm like a couple notches down from that. You know, we have friends over, uh, socially distance outside in our patio, uh, on occasion, we'll go to the grocery store and we'll get takeout food. Uh, and we'll take walks where we can socially distance from anyone else that's outside. But that is it. You know, I'm not eating in restaurants at this point. I'm not going to movie theaters. And it has occurred to, and I'm also, I should point out, like, I'm, I'm certainly not hanging out with other people. Um, and uh, if, if I am hanging out with other people, it's always, uh, or, you know, for reasons I'll get into later, it's masks on, it's outside, it's socially distanced. And uh, that's definitely not what I'm seeing everywhere. You know, like, I think there are a lot of people like me out there who listen to this podcast, who listen to this podcast, right? And I, I, I've get, I've gotten some feedback recently that the diary episodes are helpful to them. And, and when I say some feedback, I mean like a dozen people have said to me, "Hey, David, really appreciate the diary episodes." And uh, I, I have no idea how many people actually listen to these things. I, I see how many people download these things. But I have no idea how many people actually listen to them. So, like, maybe the dozen people who said they appreciate the diary episodes, it's like, that's like 100% of the people that are listening. And that's that's okay. That's why I'm making it, this episode, honestly, is because uh, people have told me they're listening to this episode or these kinds of episodes, and it helps them to process what is happening in the world. Uh, it helps them to, like, make sense of their own actions, given what's happening. And uh, so I'm extremely grateful and humbled that I can help to provide that, even if it's only for like the, you know, 10, 12 people that are listening to this right now. Um, but I think what I wanted to make this episode to say is fundamentally, whatever you're doing to stay safe, whatever you're doing to be conscientious, whatever you're doing uh, in the realm of rational thought, uh, in the realm of believing in science, in the realm of caring about people around you, keep doing it. No matter what other people are doing, no matter what else you see in the world, um, no matter what the government is telling you to do, uh, because ultimately I think you are doing the right thing, right? And when I say the right thing, what I'm referring to is um, being socially distanced, wearing masks, uh, being considerate of others, like th those kinds, that's what I am referring to. Because when I look on my Instagram feed, uh, I see lots of people in my Insta stories and other things, and you know, uh, clearly not socially distancing, clearly uh, not wearing masks, uh, clearly just, you know, moving on with life with uh, uh, friends as, uh, as usual. And... I have a few reactions to that, right? When I see stuff like that going on. I mean, my, my initial reaction is like kind of uh, 
anger and irritation. But that's like very unhelpful, you know, and it's very unfair. It's very judgy. Like I have no idea what people's situations are. So I try to like tamp that down whenever I see that, right? I try to think to myself like, okay, you, you don't know what their situation is. Maybe all those people are in a, in a COVID bubble together or whatever. Um, uh, more, more likely, I think, People are always in the um, uh, process of making a complex series of trade-offs about what they can do, right? And um, people have decided like, oh, hey, uh, I understand what the risk of COVID is and I understand what the risk to myself, I understand what the risk to my friends are and I, I understand what their risk tolerance is. And you know what? Uh, I'm just going to roll the dice. Now, I, I may disagree with that decision. I may disagree with the level of risk assessment, um, but I can't uh, I can't assume that that calculation is not being made by people, right? Like people probably are thinking about it and they're probably making the decision. You know what? Uh, I've decided that after weighing the risks, I'm going to do this. Now, I personally, um, th the thing that uh, I am like, Trying to avoid at all costs. Obviously, I'm trying to avoid getting COVID-19 because um, I, I don't want to get it. I don't want uh, the organ damage that may come from it. And my wife is immunocompromised. It could be pretty catastrophic for her if she got it. Um, and so, like, that's something that I'm always thinking about. Uh, like, I'm basically taking actions for two people, right? But uh, it's very possible, you know, I'm going to get it at some point. I think it's it's... Uh, not outside the realm of possibility, and like I'm, I'm slowly starting to like accept that possibility. Uh, it's mind-boggling to think that 6.1 million people in the country have already gotten it. That's a significant portion of this country's population, right? Millions of people have gotten it. Millions more will get it in the future. It's very possible I'm going to be one of them. What I don't want to do at this moment in time, and maybe my opinion is going to change later, what I don't want to do is get it for a dumb reason. You know, I don't want to get it because uh, I went to a movie theater or decided to eat at a restaurant or, you know, hung out with a friend who uh, I decided to, like, let my guard down and not socially distance. And I just think every one of these cases, uh, you know, it, it's these abstract numbers, right? 6.1 million cases, 186,000 uh, deaths. And it, it's these abstract numbers, but, like, every one of those cases is its own story of stress, its own story of potentially like calamity of like long-term dealing with the consequences professionally and phys physically of this disease. Um, the toll is unimaginable to me. Like I can't, I can't comprehend it. And so I, I think of like every one of these cases, every one of these deaths, all the people in their lives that were impacted by it, all the healthcare workers that were impacted by every single one of these cases, um, people who had just more shit to deal with because um, people couldn't uh, avoid, you know, staying home. And uh, I, I just want to avoid that at all costs. Now, I, I do want to acknowledge again, you know, and I'm going to get into this a little bit later, that like everyone has their own... Um, set of risks that they're weighing and like I, I I can only speak from my own experience and um and where I am you know I am privileged enough to be able to work from home and so like uh, there's many people for whom that is not an option and so like my comments and thoughts don't necessarily apply to you right like you're maybe you're facing a whole different set of risks on a daily basis that I can't possibly comprehend and so like you got to make the decisions that are right for you 
Um, but I'm just telling you kind of where my thinking is at because that's really what this podcast is. It's really what my thoughts are, my view on the world. One of the flashpoints of this entire debate has been movie theaters. Movie theaters are obviously a topic that are really near and dear to my heart. I've spent the last 14 years of my life reviewing movies online, talking about movie news, movie culture, film-going culture, uh, the entertainment industry, and so on. And I uh, have been uh, really discouraged, um, really saddened by all the the dialogue around Tenet specifically. Now, movie-going as an industry was already in a lot of trouble, right? Um, movie theater, uh, uh, sorry, movie ticket sales were declining over time. And uh, despite the population of the United States going up, um, the number of movie screens in the country was going up. Uh, and these are like really expensive leases to maintain. So it basically like, uh, the, the industry as a whole was already bad pre-COVID. COVID has made things uh, in, into an existential threat, right, for movie theaters. Like there was a significant risk that movie theaters might never come back from this, or at least large swaths of, uh, of movie theaters currently in the U.S. today. In comes this Christopher Nolan movie, Tenet. Uh, Christopher Nolan, a director who just by dint of him, him being involved in a project, by him writing and directing a project, um, he has been able to reinvent what we think of as the theatrical experience. His use of IMAX is very innovative. He creates spectacles, and I'm a big fan of his films. And uh, he was deeply involved with the decision to uh, play Tenet in movie theaters. Like, but by all from all the reporting I've seen on it, uh, you know, Tenet, this movie that was supposed to come out in July that Warner Brothers is releasing, Christopher Nolan uh, was was very very much involved with uh, what the rollout strategy was, whether it would be released, when it would be released. Uh, he is a director that wields enormous influence and power at uh, that company, uh, at the studio. And early on in the summer, I was kind of giving Christopher Nolan the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I was saying like, okay, Christopher Nolan is trying to balance like his movie potentially being a, uh, playing a significant role in maybe saving theatrical film going, or at least like delaying its inevitable decline and death. Um, and he's trying to balance that between like keeping Americans safe because at the, at the time when all this was being debated in like June, early July period, uh, it wasn't clear that, uh, COVID would become completely uncontrollable. And so he was like pushing back the release date and like, yeah, you know, playing all these games with tenants release and like, Hey, um, I was thinking maybe he really does have the interests of both movie going and like the theatrical film going industry and the health and safety of the American people at heart. You know, maybe that's true that he has both those things in mind. I no longer believe that to be true. I think that the rollout of tenant has been irresponsible. And fundamentally it's because I think that people shouldn't be going to movie theaters right now, uh, in general. Uh, I, I think that the problem with movie theaters is that unfortunately, uh, they are, <laughs> if you, you put together all the things that make you more likely to get COVID-19 and literally movie theaters, 
are, are like a bullseye for like the, it's like in the Venn diagram center of all of those things, right? It's a uh, small enclosed space. It's in a space with lots of strangers. It's indoors. Um, it's a situation where people aren't wearing masks and certainly movie theaters can require masks, but their business model depends on you eating and drinking. So people have to remove the masks uh, when they eat and drink. And then of course, um, movie theaters for many people are, uh, inessential. What I mean by that is you can survive your life without going to a movie theater. You can't survive without going to the grocery store. And so movie theaters are at this like really, really unfortunate confluence of factors that's just like it's a bad idea to go now uh as i just want to reiterate my caveat like um there's many places in the country where uh there are extremely low case counts you know um there's many places in the world where there are extremely low case counts um you may be able to go to a movie theater where there's no one else in the theater because they're uh selling them at like you know 25 or 30 or 50 percent capacity and you might feel like oh i can so i, I can be in there with like three other people in the theater and it's going to be relatively safe uh and people will be wearing masks most of the time and like yeah it's very possible you can see it in conditions in which um it's safe so i, I if you feel like i don't feel like i'm judging your specific viewing experience but in general right uh, the the idea of a movie theater, I feel like, is specifically calibrated to spread disease, right? At least this disease, which by all uh, for for all the science we have on it, indicates that like aerosolized spread is one of the primary methods of spreading COVID nineteen, which is something, by the way, that like uh, wasn't our understanding several months ago, and I'll get into that a little bit later as well. So uh, anyway. I was reading this article at Washington Post by Anne Hornaday. It's entitled, This is not a tenant review, here's why. And there's been many like uh, movie critics, like Ty Burr at Boston Globe also wrote something like this, where uh, movie critics have kind of been refusing to review movies that are out in theaters and writing about why they're refusing as kind of to register kind of the protest against how this is playing out, right? And uh, I thought this is one of the one of the better articles Anne Hornaday had written, and so I'll link to this as well as everything else I mentioned in the show notes. Um, but uh, here is what Anne Hornaday writes, and I'm gonna see. So, so one of the things that Anne Hornaday has said, like why she's not reviewing Tenet, is because um, uh, Warner Brothers has not provided her uh, a screening, a screener, and she doesn't. Like she, like me, doesn't trust the idea of going to a critic screening, even with very few people. Um, and she says here, uh, sitting in a theater for two and a half hours with other people was our only option to see Tenet. There were no alternatives offered, such as digital links provided to critics for the personal history of David Copperfield, which opened in theaters last week. The decision to pass on Tenet was agonizing for me and my colleagues at The Post, but none of us felt comfortable with the physical terms of watching it when at least 180,000 people in the U.S. have died from coronavirus and around 40,000 new cases and up to 1,000 deaths are reported daily. We're still heeding the suggestions of doctors, scientists, and judicious public officials to err on the side of caution and limit our indoor activities uh, to necessities such as food shopping and medical appointments. The symbolic and economic importance of tenant notwithstanding, it simply didn't feel essential enough to make the cut. While respecting our, our readers' individual decisions about whether to venture into theaters, the absence of a digital option to watch the film effectively deprived us of the same choice. 
Put more harshly, we were held hostage to Tenet's marketing rollout, given a high-minded sheen by Nolan's vaunted artistic purity, and we chose not to play. This hurts. It hurts that I won't be able to see Tenet and share my, opinion, my impressions of what surely qualifies as the most eagerly awaited film of the year. Most of all, it hurts not to be able to aid the comeback of movie theaters with full-throated enthusiasm. During the shutdown, we've endeavored to shine a light on independent theaters that have made streaming, streaming titles available to their patrons as a way of nurturing their communities and earning at least some revenue while they've gone dark. But that admirably resourceful response comes at a cost. The more conditioned viewers become to seeing movies on their home screens, the less inclined they might be to return to brick-and-mortar theaters when they reopen." End quote. So that's Anne Hornaday at the Washington Post writing about Tenet. And yeah, I mean, uh, I, I do also want to point out, like, it might sound from that review like it's... I, I just want to clarify that, like, I think listening to that, you could say, like, oh, this is just a critic throwing a, a, a fit about um, not having, a, like, a digital screener. You know, like, everyone... Like, the riffraff need to go and watch it in the theater, but I want to have a digital screener. And that's really not the impression I get from this article. I think it's more like um, Warner Brothers has removed the option for her to review it in in, sa in safety. And, you know, there's also the idea that they, re re like they are not providing the option for people to watch it at home in safety as well. Um, and... You know, it's just the problem is that things have not been under control in the United States for, from a coronavirus perspective. We have not got things under control, but people so desperately want things to return back to normal that I think like Tenet is probably going to make millions of dollars this weekend. And that scares me because I think that a lot of those screenings won't be in safe conditions, but some of them will be. And, you know, maybe you're going to go to one of them. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just... Uh, it's, it's sad to me where we've ended up with this tenant thing, you know, which is that uh, they chose to open this movie. People are going to go see it, potentially subjecting themselves to the risk of contracting a debilitating or deadly disease uh, that we barely understand from a scientific perspective, or that we we you know are only starting to understand from a scientific perspective. Um, and typically, you know, critics like movie critics would love to be on the side of like, hey, yes, tenant, save the theatrical experience. Um, but we can't because things in the U.S. are really bad right now. And also, um, we can't even go ourselves to see the movie in conditions that we feel are safe. So uh, I think the Tenet thing is interesting because it kind of provides this this window into how things are going in the U.S., right? It, it, it's all the conflicts of like commerce, of people wanting life to go back to normal, um, of the dying movie industry, like it's all kind of represented in this tenant problem. I made a YouTube video about this. You can watch that as well. It kind of shows me wrestling with this and uh, you should check that out if you want to hear me talk more about this, which at this point you're probably tired of it. So all good. A couple of the things I want to share um, that I've been thinking about. One of the things is, you know, I was talking earlier about how I um, have uh, been thinking about everyone wanting to things to go back normal, and like on my Instagram feed and sometimes on Facebook, I see people just like acting as though everything's normal, hanging out with friends. You know, who gives a shit? Uh, and again, knowing that I'm not familiar with all the circumstances, um, 
what my I was saying like my first reaction is oh anger and irritation. My second reaction is wait, Dave, maybe you don't understand what they're going through or what's happening in their lives or the the set of trade offs they're making. But my third reaction is all this shit is just going to extend how long we're in this. You know, um, there are now at this point there's been many viral videos of um people at stores um, that have no mask policies, like people arguing, shouting, screaming, beating up people who are trying to enforce mask policies. And, uh, you know, here's here's one recent video where this uh, man tried to fight Walmart employees because he would not put on a mask. Get back on your highway to hell and get out of a godly man's face. No, I will. By your very blind ignorance, you don't have the ability to even come up with your own fucking ideas. I believe when I've said you've not established authority to tell me to leave, you go get management. You want to talk? You find management that I can no longer. Yeah. You have four minutes here. Are you exercising? You're right, as a private company, take away my rights. Jesus Christ. You can say you can refuse service. Are you refusing my service? Yes. Why don't you say we refuse your service? And every time I see a video like this, I'm just like, this shit's just going to make things last longer. You know, like eventually I do believe we are going to get out of this thing. And and uh, not necessarily that COVID-19 is going to be cured, but that like, through some combination of factors, whether we have a treatment, whether we have a vaccine, whether we have herd immunity, like at some point in the near to distant future, uh, life will start to return back to normal. And basically, whenever I see people not wearing masks, whenever I see people freaking out at Walmart employees, my reaction is you're just you're just making this shit last longer for everyone and um you're extending this one person is extending the the pandemic by 0.0000000001% um and the you know the weight of all that the the combined weight of all that over time is um is tough you know it's tough to see on a daily basis just like and and feel like really completely powerless right uh completely powerless to help a um, couple of other thoughts on this subject. One is I read this article by uh, Bill Plaschke over at the LA Times. Um, he is a sports columnist. And uh, he wrote in this column entitled, I had COVID-19 and these are the things nobody tells you. A couple of things about this piece that, first, the piece is very haunting overall and it's well worth reading. There's a couple of things about this piece that really interested me. One of them was that uh, this, uh, and by the way, there's like a uh, dump truck outside my house. So if you hear some dump trucking in the background, that's what that is. But um, one thing he wrote about was like the uncertainty. You know, this is really, really interesting. He, he, he's like, he says here, quote, nobody tells you about the dread. From the moment my doctor phoned me with the test results to the moment I'm writing this column, I have been scared out of my mind. 
I know the minuscule overall fatality percentages. I know the overwhelming odds of survival for a 61-year-old male in good health with no pre-existing conditions. It doesn't matter. Once you realize you have a virus that could kill you and there's nobody, there's nothing anybody can do about it, you live in constant fear. With every trickle of sweat off your forehead, you worry. With every deep cough, you wonder. You check your temperature 53 times every day, and every single time that thermometer's in your mouth, you close your eyes and pray. You stick your finger in the pulse oximeter every hour and beg for the numbers to rise, end quote. And yeah, it, it's a terrifying um, portrayal of what it's like to have COVID-19 because the uncertainty is uh, unimaginable. You know, it's, it's like, hey, uh, there's a chance you might die. There's a chance you might come away from this with like permanent organ damage or that you, there's a chance it might clear up like the flu. And it's just like, you just don't know. And having it, um, yeah, uh, or, 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 of course, there's also the chance you may have zero symptoms, which is probably like the cruelest, I don't know if irony is the right word, but cruelest development from this whole situation is like there's people who like massive millions of people out there probably have this. They have no idea they have it. And so, and but they're passing it on, you know? It's so, so odd. Anyway, the other thing uh, that was really struck me about this piece is this guy... Bill Plachke seems like he's as careful as me. He says, quote, in my social circles, I was considered among the least likely person to contract a disease because basically I abandoned the circles. For four months, I avoided all crowded driveway happy hours and cul-de-sac cocktail parties. I didn't set foot inside my church even during the brief time it was open. I didn't set foot inside a grocery store as my youngest daughter, Mary Claire, who was quarantined with me for most of summer, did all the shopping. I wore a mask everywhere. I followed all the rules. But a couple weeks ago, I didn't follow my instincts. I briefly let my guard down. The coronavirus came out swinging. Uh, the weekend before my symptoms appeared, for the first time in four months, I met friends for two dinners at two socially distanced patio tables. Nobody is required to wear masks at the tables, so I removed my mask when I sat, as did my dining partners, and we left them off during the entire time we were at the table. I didn't do anything that was prohibited, right? I was just following the rules, right? My guess is that I caught it there, end quote. Now, who knows where Bill Plachke caught the coronavirus? Maybe he was at the outdoor patio. Maybe his daughter caught it when she was at a grocery store and unknowingly passed it on to him. I have no idea. I have no idea. But it does seem like there's a strong correlation between him letting his guard down once and uh, catching coronavirus. Him letting his guard down once by taking off a mask at an outdoor patio and him catching coronavirus. Uh and you know we're all we're all still learning about this, and so like I understand that like I may revisit my thoughts on this in in the next week, a few weeks. But like I have been doing outdoor, socially distanced visits with no masks. Like that that is what I have been doing all summer. And after I read this article, uh, I am not doing that anymore. Uh, it, it, what I mean by that is. Uh, still having the outdoor get-togethers, you know, um, but like now, uh, we, my wife and I are trying to enforce a rule of like eight to ten feet, you know, and also masks on the entire time, even outdoors. Uh, that's kind of where we've landed on this. And uh, again, we will never be able to completely eliminate risk, um, but we can at least minimize it to the greatest extent possible because. I, again, as I said, if I get it, which is very possible I'm going to get it, I don't want it to be because of dumb shit. I don't want it to be because I did something stupid, right? I I, I want to have taken every reasonable precaution I could. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it only takes one moment of letting your guard down. 
this Bill Plasky article is like, he went to an outdoor patio. I interviewed Hannah Davis on this podcast a few weeks ago. And according to her, she caught it uh, from a grocery store. You know, you can go to a grocery store and uh, potentially catch it there. And so it's like, um, we're, we're doing everything we can. You know, I'm going to grocery stores very rarely. We're eating tons of frozen foods. I am uh, wearing a KN95 mask whenever I go uh, outside to any any place that has any population at this point. Um, one, one thing that's been interesting to reflect on, too, is how much our understanding of COVID-19 has changed over the last six months. When this first started, uh, the idea was that, like, hey, this is going to be a thing where you got to wash your hands for 20 seconds. We think like the primary method of transition uh, transmission is like droplets, fomites, right? People, um, uh, touching uh, surfaces and then like touching their face. And I'm sure that is a way of transmitting the disease, but from all the studies we've seen, it does not appear to be the primary way. It does. It appears to be like aerosol aerosolized transmission. And I just don't think we're talking about that enough. Like we're not talking enough about like how we can convert our spaces to aerosolized transmission. There's a great article in the Atlantic. I'll link to it in the show notes about hygiene theater. Right. And like people are cleaning, like at movie theaters, they're cleaning, like we're cleaning all the seats. We're cleaning all the railings. And it's like, dude, uh, no one gives a shit. And what I mean by that is like, yes, that is probably helps a little bit, but like really it's aerosolized transmission. That is probably the thing we need to focus on. It's getting the air out of there that we need to focus on. No one's talking about that in any meaningful degree. They're, they're talking about how they're cleaning the railings and the seats and everything, but they're not talking about, and like the New York city subway, you know, they're cleaning all the railings and seats. No one's talking about like, or at least, you know, uh, I mean, what I am hearing, I'm just, maybe they are talking about it and I'm not, I don't have access to it. I haven't heard about it, but anyway, from, from my own personal information sphere, it feels like we're really behind when it comes to figuring out ways of making indoor spaces more safe through uh, better ventilation and things of that nature. I'll link to a couple of articles in the show notes that kind of speak to this and you can read up on it yourself. Um, but yeah, I, I will say that, uh, from my own personal perspective, when it comes to like our evolving understanding of COVID-19 that like, uh, I actually think the aerosolized transmission thing makes it easier for me to manage, uh, from a, a cognitive load perspective. It used to be when I went to the grocery store, I needed to have a whole system for like when I was touching what, right? Like I would, um, my, my wife and I had the system of like when you are inside the via, when you're inside the car, that is like the safe uh, area. And so like we would the second we got outside the car, we put on gloves, and then um, but you don't touch anything inside the car with anything that's like dirty. Like we tried to like have a you know how like in hospitals they have a system where they scrub in and then um, the doctors like hold their hands up before they head into the room because it's all sterilized and they don't want to touch anything kind of had that system for my, uh, our, our car when we drove to the grocery store and it was just very, very taxing to need to figure out, uh, when you were, when you were like needing to touch certain things and like, Oh, did I touch the thing? Did I, did I need new gloves? Cause I did I touch a thing. And, um, it was exhausting. It's exhausting to go out in public in those conditions. Uh, and now this aerosolized thing, honestly, it's, uh, in, in a way it's more scary, right? Cause you can't see it. Like even when 
COVID-19 is on a post or on a, on a desk or whatever that you, you might touch. You can't see it because it's germs, obviously, but you can still like see the surface. Um, and so you're like, okay, avoid touching surface, avoid touching surface, right? So in a way, like the idea of it being aerosolized is scarier because you can't see it. But in a different way, it's much more manageable to me because then you know, like, oh, just avoid indoor spaces. Avoid indoor spaces. Or if you're going into indoor space, make sure you're wearing a mask. Um, make sure you're like ideally wearing like uh, like a highly protective mask. Um, make sure that like, there's as few people in there as possible. Like essentially, what I'm saying is like the the ways to optimize for like an aerosolized thing um, feel to me like much easier to manage than how to optimize for a fomite transmission thing. I don't know what your experience has been, but just kind of sharing like for me, it's been a lot easier to handle because like it just feels like the number of variables is lower, weirdly enough, right? Because it's not about you touching everything. It's like about the situation that you're in. So anyway, further random, just further random thoughts on uh, how this is going. Um, uh, final thing I want to mention before I wrap up, and that's uh, I uh, sent out a newsletter this week um, about... Uh, how important this year's election is. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter, by the way, you can always go to davechen.net slash letters, sign up your email. Uh, every time I make like a lengthy blog post, um, you'll get it. Uh, I've been kind of like debating whether to post these on the Patreon as well. Like I, I, I'm so grateful to all my Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash davechen, but like I don't want to give I, I try not to give them like double content that I already publish elsewhere but like it's it's weird I, I don't know exactly how to manage it um still working it out anyway uh this uh I, I've been thinking a lot about how important this election is but um one of the things that I pointed out this week in the newsletter is this uh Twitter thread by a writer named Bryn Tannehill and she wrote it in very stark terms uh, on a, a viral Twitter thread on August 28th. Uh, and she says, quote, the more I write about this, the more it becomes plain. If Biden loses, 2020 will be the last remotely free and fair election we'll have for decades and certainly my lifetime. We're in the middle of an autocratic attempt and it looks so much like Hungary's. The courts are being packed with lo loyalists. Most state legislatures and swing states are gerrymandered beyond belief. The executive branch is gaining unitary power. Department of Justice is blatantly, selectively applying the law to favor the autocrat. Congress is no longer a check on corruption, as the Senate has been captured by Trump loyalists. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, Ginsburg is in bad shape. Ditto Breyer. Hybrid regimes, uh, competitive authoritarianism, are, comp are remarkably stable. This is why 2020 is for all the marbles. This is why I have no use for people who whinge about Biden and Harris not being far enough left for the, their taste. They're under the mistaken belief that if Biden loses, they'll have another chance to elect people that are far enough left for their liking. The truth is, if Biden and Harris lose, there isn't going to be an opportunity to elect someone they like in their lifetime. Not without secession of blue states. That's the only plausible scenario I can come up with after the autocratic breakthrough, end quote. Anyway, she expanded her thoughts into uh, an article for Dame Magazine. She talks about how like there are uh, competitive authoritarian regimes in the world. Uh, Hungary is an example of one where, yes, there's still... Uh, elections, you know, uh, there's still quote unquote free media, um, there, but there is non-proportional representation, you know, and these regimes have proven to be remarkably stable, like over a decade old, like people thought, oh, they're just going to crumble immediately. Nope. They've lasted for quite a while. 
And uh, we seem to be heading that way because, like, uh, if this election doesn't go in a landslide for Joe Biden, which is very, very possible, uh, then the next Supreme Court, like, Trump will likely appoint two additional Supreme Court justices, uh, which will be a seven to two majority that's going to last for, you know, generations, right? Or decades at least. And we all know how a Supreme Court that rules in favor of, uh, of the party that appointed them uh, can help in, in getting them elected, right? Uh, so there is a lot of, uh, a lot of importance in this uh, election, and I think this year's election is going to shape really the rest of our lives if you want to stay in America. Um, so one other thing, you know, I, I probably should have brought this up before. I, I got these topics a little bit out of order. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm a little bit disorganized um, this morning. I'm recording this very, very early in the morning. But um, there is this idea that I read recently about, like, epistemic closure. I thought this is very fascinating. Julian Sanchez tweeted this on August 26th. And um Episte- epistemic closure is a concept he claims he coined. I don't. I can't speak to whether he did or not, but he said it. Beca- it has become a, 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 a sort of synonym for stuck in an echo chamber or closed-minded. Um, but that's not how he intended it. He says, "quote An echo chamber just means you never hear contract uh, contrary information. The idea of epistemic closure was that you would hear new and contrary information, but you have mechanisms in your belief system that reject anything that might force you to update your beliefs." So, for instance, if someone believes that the Illuminati control the world and that any evidence against this hypothesis was manufactured by the Illuminati to hide their existence, proving their power and influence, that's what I meant by epistemic closure. It is extraordinary and, as far as I know, unprecedented how many of Trump's own former employees and senior officials have come out to say, this guy is unfit for office and, in fact, a serious threat to U.S. national security. You'd think people might find this hugely alarming. But that doesn't seem to give his supporters much pause, not just because they don't become aware of it, but because there's a mechanism that enables supporters to reject this testimony out of hand, the deep state. If the deep state's part of your belief system, the testimony of these officials doesn't affect your confidence in Trump's competence. It proves how threatening he must be to the wicked network determined to undermine his presidency. Ditto fake news, plenty of news every day calling into question Trump's honesty, competence, and decency. But if fake news is part of your belief system, the sheer volume of this actually works to validate this claim that media elites are hopelessly biased against him, end quote. This is what I think the nightmare our country is living in right now, right? It's that is that this epistemic closure, we talked about this a couple weeks ago on the podcast with David Ferrier and how people have created these closed systems uh, that are virtually impossible to penetrate. Um, they believe in conspiracy theories and any evidence to the contrary of the conspiracy theory is just further proof of the conspiracy theory. And the, the conspiracy theory is true because of course, like the people who, uh, who have perpetuated this thing are going to want to try to hide it. Um, It's a scary place to be. Now, one thing Julian Sanchez points out is that uh, there is, there is one thing uh, that that, like people who are subject to epistemic closure, uh, they, one thing that he says here is that closed beliefs systems like this tend to, they tend to be strong, but brittle. It's hard to make a crack in the firewall, but if you do make a crack, Often the whole edifice crumbles with surprising speed, and the crack can be something very small. 
If you try to attack the Trump beliefs Death Star head on, your arguments are just going to bounce off the force field. You need to take out the shield generator first. I don't know how to do that, but maybe folks who've had some success can offer what's worked for them. End quote. I thought that was interesting. The idea that like, you can't take everything head on. You just you gotta look for little cracks in the system, right? Look for little things that like are un incontrovertible and that people can't um, can't contradict. And I I think coronavirus is starting to be one of those things. But unfortunately, I think a lot more people uh, will die before it becomes something that people truly take seriously. Uh, but this epistemic closure is something that I think about when I think about the election coming up, when I think about people's refusal to wear masks, uh, when I think about people like wanting things to go back to normal, not necessarily the subject to epistemic closure, but like ma many people who are voting for Trump or don't believe in coronavirus or believe coronavirus is a hoax, they are in a closed system that is pretty much unreachable. Um, so, I, I mean, I know that when I record this podcast episode, I'm not reaching those people. I'm obviously reaching people who like either agree with me or at least have an open mind. Um, but I, I hope you'll consider the things I'm saying and uh, process it and use it for your own life in whatever way you think is most productive. Before I wrap up today, um, I want to give a weekly recommendation. Let's give a weekly recommendation that's not uh, as as down and scary as everything else I've been talking about today. Um, I read Nicholas Kwa's work quite a bit, uh, former guest of the podcast, Nicholas Kwa, uh, and uh, he writes about podcasts. That's his his beat, is he covers podcasts. Um, and he recommended a podcast recently that I started checking out, and it is fascinating. It's called Dead Eyes. I'll read the plot summary here on the site. Actor-comedian Connor Ratliff embarks upon a quest to solve a very stupid mystery that has haunted him for two decades. Why Tom Hanks fired him from a small role in the 2001 HBO miniseries Band of Brothers, end quote. Fascinating show. Uh, it, it sounds like, honestly, a pretty dumb show, a pretty self-indulgent show. Just based on that description, I'm like, this doesn't sound interesting to me at all. Uh, but then I start listening to it, and it is fascinating, and it's really well done. And for me, it's about how a single moment in someone's life can like end up shaping the rest of their life. And I think that's just really, really interesting and brought to life very well. And if you're into the entertainment industry and you're into podcasts, check out Dead Eyes. Uh, it's a podcast available on HeadGum. I'll link to it in the show notes. All right. I think that's going to do it for me today on this episode of Culturally Relevant. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Dave Chen. And follow this podcast on Twitter at CREVSHOW, C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. Uh, this podcast was powered by Simplecast, uh, simplecast.com. Check them out. They're a great uh, podcast management and analytics tool if you're thinking of starting or managing your own podcast. Uh, simplecast.com, great resource. I hope everyone has a lovely Labor Day weekend and that um, you're staying safe, staying healthy, socially distancing, um, being, you know, above all else, being thoughtful about the risks you take. Um, because, uh, you know, if you think like you can absorb some risk, do it, man, do it. Um, and if you feel like you shouldn't, then don't, don't be peer pressured into doing that. Um, don't see all, don't be tempted by all the Instagram photos of everyone hanging out and laughing and riding and cornholing, you know, and having a great time. Uh, stick to your guns. Uh, it's what I'm doing. And I hope you'll join me in doing so. Thanks for listening. See you next week for a brand new episode of Culturally Relevant. Yeah.